Yeah, that was just um, something we want to we want to share with people. We want them to kind of know what's the exchange, what's this about. We can kind of put this on our Facebook, and it kind of explains the heartbeat of our community. That's really it. We just want to get the message of the gospel out. That's that's really it. So um, we'll probably post that later this week. Make sure it's not doing that, um, and uh, just try to make sure it's nice and clean and clear for everyone. All right, Mark chapter one. Um, let me just kind of give you some background and explain some things in case you are new. And we just started Mark a few weeks ago. This is our fourth message in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you're with us, uh, just we want to give you some background so you can understand what's going on. So Mark, his name's also John Mark, all right? John would be his Hebrew name, Mark being his Roman name. Uh, we see Mark throughout the book of Acts. We know that Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas helped plant several churches and advance the gospel really into what we'd call Europe or Asia Minor. He, he kind of advanced the gospel in that area. He's the cousin of Barnabas, but he's also the, the son in the faith of Peter. Peter discipled John Mark. He, he discipled Mark. Uh, it's believed that most church fathers would say that this is kind of Peter's gospel, just Mark wrote it down. So it's Peter kind of saying, hey, here's the gospel. Here's what's happening. And it's, it's Mark taking details of that. And I think this, this affects how we read it. We kind of see some Peterisms in it, or we see some emphasis on different things, I think. Uh, Mark, as we mentioned, also is a very quick gospel. It's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. And, and uh, Mark uses this word immediately a lot. He's like, immediately, immediately, and he's always moving on to the next thing. And we're going to see that in Mark's gospel, he's more fixated and he more focuses on really the power and the authority of Jesus than even the teachings of Jesus. And we'll see that specifically in the passage today. And, and I'm saying all of this because I think the passage we're in is so interesting. Mark's going to highlight the fact that Jesus has authority over evil, over pain, over suffering, over the supernatural, over the natural. He's going to show Jesus bring healing in those different areas. And so we're going to, I think that even just God is sovereign in this to, to remind us that, hey, I, I'm the one who can bring healing in that spiritual realm, in that natural realm. I'm the one that wherever Jesus went, we see him bring life to those things. And so we're going to see a couple different stories where Jesus does this specifically. So I just want to read this as a whole, and then we'll pray. So Mark chapter 1, we're in verse 21. Mark 1 verse 21. Remember, Jesus just called uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew to follow him. And now he says this in verse 21. Then they, so now there's a little group, it's a little posse. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately, <laughs> on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for Jesus taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon. This is Peter, uh, the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's uh, mother lay sick with a fever. And they told Jesus about her at once. Uh, verse 31, so he came and took her by the hand and he lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she served them. 
And at evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. We're going to look at specifically today the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus over the natural, the supernatural, pain, suffering, evil. We see the authority of Jesus in this passage, and that's what we're going to look at and talk about. Let's just pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this time we get to be reminded that you are all-powerful, that God, that even when there seems to be just demonic presence and evil and sickness, that God, you heal. And it's a taste of that great healing, of that ultimate healing you will bring one day. And so, Lord, we just ask, we just ask that your kingdom would come, that Jesus, that what, you, what we see happening here would happen again, that your kingdom would come, that we would get a little taste of it, that, God, you still do heal, you still do cast out demons, you still do all these things. We ask that we'd see that happen within our body. That would not just be in word, but with authority, God, with power. And so we ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Many, many years ago, a famous quote has been said, and I, I think they give, uh, they give it to Plato, but here's the quote. He said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. The measure of a man is what he does with power. Now, when we hear that word power, sometimes that can tend to kind of freak us out because I'm sure all of us have seen an abuse of power right? And that could be from your boss. That could be from the government. It could be from a different government. That can be from past experiences, current experiences. That could be different world leaders talking about which button is bigger on their desk, right? Like we've seen power actually been maybe misused or abused in different ways. And also we've seen it personally in our own lives. I mean, we've all had a boss who likes to remind us that, we're, that they're our boss. We've all had that. We've all had different people who like to boast that they're the boss and talk about that a lot. And rather than lead, they kind of focus on being the boss. We've all had different experiences like that, right? And we've seen the abuse of power. And power kind of tends to freak us out. Sometimes we'll actually talk about people like, oh, those people, that group of people that has the power. And we even begin to become prejudiced towards different groups of people acting like they're the ones really running the world. They're the ones that have the power. And we begin to develop this bitterness in our heart towards power because we see the abuse of it so often. But on the other hand... We also see power used in a really good way. There are people who have authority, and there are people who have power, and you see them use this for good. And that's exciting. You know, on Tuesday, uh, I met with some local pastors at this Lutheran church in Boca, and this pastor of this Lutheran church was talking about how last Friday night, the Friday before Valentine's Day, uh, they had this thing called a night to shine. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, Tim, the Tim Tebow Foundation will do this the Friday before Valentine's Day, but they basically throw them a prom for those who have special needs. And we got to go to his church, and he, he played this, like, 10-minute video, and it was, like, everyone in the room. There's not a dry eye in the house, right? Like, we're just watching all these, all these young students come in, and they're all given a crown or tiara, and they're being celebrated. There's a red carpet, and they're walking in, and, and they're just celebrating them. And it's, like, so fun to watch. They, and they give their caretakers, and there's many caretakers. They have a room for them. Just get some rest and food, and they're not allowed to enter the party. And they're actually said, you rest, and you do nothing. Here's some food. Just enjoy yourself. There's a video screen where they can kind of see what's happening, but they couldn't do a thing. And he's showing us this, and talking about this, and you go, wow, here's a guy, and we may, maybe not everyone, I guess I shouldn't assume, but most of us have heard of Tim Tebow, and you go, here's a guy who has a platform, who has authority, who has power, and you see how he's using it, and you see that he's using it for good. You know, there's another ministry I got to experience recently called International Justice Mission or Ministries, and IJM, and basically these are lawyers 
that go around to different parts of the world where there's police abuse or there's government abuse, whatever it might be, and they're actually lawyers on behalf of people who never have a lawyer. They're people who go to prison, get their hands cut off, or something terrible happens. There's no one to hold the authority accountable, so they go to these different countries, and they're lawyers for these people, and, and you see them bring justice, and you see them uh, pay for their law school, for the people who live there locally. You see just amazing things happening. So sometimes we see the abuse of power, and sometimes you see all the pain that power brings, but then you sometimes see that someone use their power and use their authority for someone else, and you go, that is so beautiful and so fun to watch. When someone uses their platform or authority or power to help people, and you know, I want you to think about this. All of you have a platform. All of you have, in a sense, power. All of you have authority. All of you speak into someone's life, even if that's your family's life or your employer's life or your employee's life or if that's a friend. You have influence and power over the life. It's crazy. Some of you have social media influence and power. And you can make your social media all about you and focus on you and grow your platform or you can use that to help further the gospel or help other people. Some of you have power through just maybe economics and where you stand, and you can give, and you can help, and you can support in that way. Some of you have power. We have authority and power in so many different ways. The question is not, do you have power, but how are you going to use your power? That's the question for all of us. It's not, do you have authority, do you have influence, do you have power, but how are you going to use it? And I love Jesus because when we see Jesus uses power, it's always for someone else. Jesus never, like, has, like, power, like, I want a puppy. Like, puppy! There's a puppy, and he's like, oh, this is cute. Like, you never see him use his power for himself, right? It's never to benefit him. It's to help others. It's to advance the gospel. It's to bring someone ultimately to God. I, I love that thought of that. All of us here, in a sense, have the same platform, authority, or power, and how do we use it? And I love this. When you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, how does he use it? And why are people so attracted to him? And why do people just gather around him? And why is he, why does Jesus say, I have come to serve and not be served? How does this ruler, this one with all authority, come and just change the dynamic of a boss or change the dynamic of leadership and says, I'm here to serve, not be served? And we see that Jesus kind of redefines authority. It, in our mind, it might be this like this negative dictatorship when in Jesus' mind it's a servant heart. And he's come to serve. And so here's what I want to look at specifically today. I don't know if you kind of caught this. The word authority is used, and and Mark is talking about that. But we're going to see three things specifically Jesus shows us that he has authority over. It's really everything, but three things in here. First is this. Jesus' authority over the word, or Jesus' authority over doctrine or philosophies. Then we're going to see Jesus' authority over the supernatural, or you could say over spiritual. Jesus has authority over the supernatural or spiritual realm. Then we're going to see Jesus' authority over the natural, over the physical. So Jesus has authority in these different ways, with the word, with doctrine, with teaching, over the spiritual and over the natural. So let's look at the first one. Jesus' authority over the word. Look at verse 21. All right, verse 21 again. It says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. All right, let me explain a few things, because sometimes we don't always, we've got to paint the picture a little bit. They're in Capernaum. Where's Capernaum? Remember, Jesus is in the region of Galilee. He called the disciples, who were fishermen, off the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. It's a small lake. It's 13 by 7 miles, right? It's not, it's not a sea. It's not this giant sea. It's a small lake, but he sees the disciples, he calls them, and then he goes into one of their villages, or one of their small towns called Capernaum. And in Capernaum, there is this uh, synagogue. Now, let me even explain this in case you're like, what's a synagogue? When did that happen? I thought they had temples. Okay, there is the temple that was in Jerusalem. And if you guys remember, when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the place where sacrifices were made. So it's actually during Babylonian exile is when they created this idea of the synagogue. The synagogue is when you had at least 10 Jewish males, 13 and up, 
10 Jewish males uh, that could come together and they'd read scripture, they'd pray, they would sing. It was their version of church, what we have. Read scripture, pray, sing. These, These 10 men, at least 10 men, would make a synagogue. And so there's a small little church small little synagogue in Capernaum where James, uh, where Peter and Andrew grew up. It's in their town. And, and I want you to see this, that when Jesus, oh, and they would do this, people would come in, they would grab a scroll, they'd read from the scroll, and they would teach. And, and we're told that when Jesus taught, they were astonished. Now, I don't know what Jesus taught. Like, I wish it said, and Jesus taught on this. I'm like, oh, I want that teaching. Like, it'd be great. But Mark doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the reaction of the people. They're like, this is not usual. Most people kind of tell us their opinion. But Jesus speaks with authority. See, scribes, and just again, you know this, scribes were copyists. Scribes would basically take a a book or several books and they would copy them verbatim. And they'd have to copy them verbatim. Each, you know, little kind of punctuation mark, it had to be spot on or they'd start all over again. And they'd read each other's copies. They would make sure their work was neat and clean and clear. And the idea of a copyist was someone, you'd read it so much, you were basically, you memorized the law. A lot of these guys had the whole Old Testament memorized. They, they would know it. They would know books, if not the whole thing. And so a lot of times these scribes would come up and they'd teach and they wouldn't, they would, they could memorize scripture and quote scripture, but they didn't teach it with authority. When it came to interpretation, they'd be like, well, some rabbis, Rabbi Cohen thinks it means this and Rabbi Shimei thinks it means this. And they would just kind of give other people's opinions on it. But Jesus comes on in and says, let me tell you what it means. And I love this because a lot of times they could quote other rabbis or they could quote even scripture and say, God says this. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, I say this. Like, how many times does Jesus say, verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you? Many times Jesus would come on the scene and say, listen, here's what I'm, I'm telling you truth. I am truth. And the, the point of this is Jesus is the governing authority. And my question to you and I is, do we recognize this? Do we recognize that Jesus has authority over the word? Do we recognize that Jesus has all authority? That what Jesus says about power is what stands. What Jesus says about success or money or sex or marriage, whatever he talks about, that is truth. That we, re- we base our lives off what he says, not if we like it or not. It's like sometimes we can read this, and I think there's even a fascination in 2018 with Jesus. Because whether or not you're a Christian, people go, well, Jesus obviously is a great leader. There's still a couple billion people to this day following him. Like, I want to get to know this Jesus guy, and there's a fascination with him, but is there a submission to his word? Is there a submission to what he says? See, Jesus comes on the scene and says, what I say about this, this is truth. And he's the governing authority over all of it. He is the word. He, he's literally the word made flesh. He is the truth in that light, in that sense. And yet, for some reason today, even Christians, we're guilty of this. We like to cherry pick. We like to go, well, I like this verse. I don't like that verse. I like this verse. I don't like that verse. And we kind of make up our own scriptures. And we kind of interpret it the way we want to interpret it. And we kind of want it to fit our lifestyle and what we think it means. And I, th- I love that how Jesus comes in the scenes and he speaks with authority. You know, there's actually a guy named St. Augustine who said this, and I thought it's worth sharing. He says, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. Can we hear that again? If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you, leave, you believe, but yourself. I think there's a tendency for us to make Jesus in our image. If we're an introvert, we say, Jesus was introverted. Look, he liked to get away. If we're an extrovert, we're like, Jesus was extroverted. Look, he talks to people. If we're like, if we have a certain political bent, we're like, Jesus has this political bent. Look what he says this, give to Caesar. Like, we like to make Jesus in our image. We like to take the parts we like about him. 
And there's a side where you got to look at the biblical Jesus, the Jesus that challenges all of us, the Jesus that challenges me and says, you know what, I might feel this way about this topic, or I might think this way about this topic, but what I feel and what I think, I'm going to submit over to Jesus, who really knows the true, uh, who really has created truth itself and knows how life will work and function at its best when I submit to him and his authority. You see, Jesus did not just speak truth, he is truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And I love that, guys. Can I, in, in case you ever hear that, what does that even mean? Can I just say this? Truth is not just words on a page. It's a person. And I love that about truth. It's not just like a certain belief system. It's not just a belief system. It's even more than that. It's a found in a person. That Jesus himself is truth. And we hold everything. We compare everything to the person of Jesus. If you guys remember in John chapter 6, it's a great story. Uh, but Peter and the disciples are there. And there's thousands of people Jesus feeds them, and he shares this really hard message. He says, whoever does not eat of my body and drink of my blood will have no part with me will not enter the kingdom. And they're thinking, this is weird. Jesus has lost his mind. He's speaking of a cannibalism. Like, Jesus has thousands of followers. He goes, guys, you must eat my body and drink my blood. They're going, what is he talking about? And it says, many walked away from Jesus that day. Many walked away. Many didn't get it. They're going, that's weird. And they walked away. Then Jesus looks at the disciples and says, are you also going to go? Are you also going to leave me? And if you guys remember this response by Peter in John 6, verse 68, but Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A couple things. Look at, keep this verse up. A couple things. He says, we've come to believe and know. You have the words of eternal life. The question is this. If not Jesus, then what? If not Jesus, then Who? So Jesus, Peter recognizes this, and I love the order, and I point this out, that he says, you, we have come to believe and know. Not that we know and therefore we believe, but we believe and now we know. The order is so important. And this is what's really hard for people who, who like to think, and I like to think, I love to read, I love to study, I love asking questions, like, I love to challenge things, but there is a side of Christianity that says when you believe, you know. And you go, no, no, I want to know, then I'll believe. And it's like, it just doesn't work that way. When you believe, you really know. When you, be, when you actually put your faith and trust in Jesus, this veil's removed from your eyes and you go, oh my gosh, everything in life now makes sense. Now sin and suffering, pain, evil, this did not make sense without the gospel. This does not make sense without the origin of creation. This does not make sense without God himself entering this and suffering with us. Like, it doesn't really make sense until you believe. And then you kind of filter everything out and go, it makes sense now. We've come to believe and know. We've come to believe and know. And I suggest to you that when you believe, you will know. When you really do put your faith in Jesus, you go, oh my gosh, this is exactly what my heart was longing for. This is exactly what my heart was created for. It's not that you know and you believe. Amen? It just does not work that way. There's a side where God, where it's like, God's like, I'm a rewarder of those who diligently seek me. If those come to me, they must come to me by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there is a side where you say, I'm going to by faith believe the words of Jesus and, see, and study Jesus and his teachings. I'm going to believe in Jesus. And then you go, there's no other option out there. There's no other option than the person of Jesus and what he said and did and his, the way that God of the universe lived such a humble life and he took on pain himself and was subject to that. And you go, what other, what other belief is out there that would, that would kind of satisfy my heart the way this does? And, and we realize there's not. We've come to believe and know. You have the words of eternal life. Listen, Jesus has authority over the word. What Jesus says goes. There are things in my life, guys, and I hope we can all be honest. There are opinions I might have and opinions you might have that I have to lay down at the foot of the cross. That I say, I don't care. I might feel this way. I might think this way, but it doesn't matter what I think or feel. Jesus, you say this. I believe this. Jesus, you define marriage this way. I'm going to define marriage this way. 
It's not what I think. It's not what I feel. I don't create the rules. When someone's like, I disagree with what you think about sex and singleness, and that, I just, you're not disagreeing with me. Like, Here's the word of God. And either we submit to it or we don't. And when you realize when I submit to it, life just seems to work. And you go, oh my gosh, I'm enjoying marriage. I'm enjoying singleness. I'm enjoying this. It's like, yes, you're submitting to the word. And that's what happens when you and I submit to the word instead of fighting against it. And there's so much beauty in that. Jesus has authority. They go, the scribes don't talk like this. The scribes kind of just tell us their opinions and then leave. Jesus says, this is the word of God. Verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, listen to me. And Jesus gives us the words of life. Amen? Peter learned that. I love that about Peter. He goes, we've come to learn and believe. We know you have the words of eternal life. So Jesus has authority over the word. Now here's the next thing we'll spend more time on. Number two is Jesus. Jesus' authority over the supernatural. Jesus' authority over the supernatural. And please don't miss this one. And please, as we reread this, look at the interaction between this demon-possessed man and Jesus. Look at verse 23. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Shut up. <laughs> come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, and imagine seeing that, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doc doctrine is this? For with authority, listen, it's doctrine with authority. For with authority he commands every unclean spirit, and they obey him, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Let's just point this out first. There's this demon-possessed guy in the, in the synagogue. There's this demon-possessed guy in the house of God. That's not uncommon. I want you to see the subtlety of this, that he's just hanging out there. And, and I wonder how many times has this demon-possessed guy sat in church and, and nothing's ever happened. And I wonder how many times he's kind of been around this, but now here Jesus comes on the scene and everything changes. Like all hell breaks loose. You know, I wonder if he just kind of subtly got away with it. I wonder if he, you know, there was no authority with the scribes. Maybe in a sense it was not, it was not harming their kingdom. It was not harming them. He can kind of just bear and, and can be in the synagogue because they weren't preaching the scriptures with authority. Like, I wonder if he just kind of got away for so long and there's a subtleness to this. And, and I want to say that the enemy is very subtle. And there really is a subtleness to, to kind of this idea. Let me, let me explain something really quick, by the way. This guy was demon-possessed. There's a demon that possessed him, that controlled him. And I'm not going to fully get into this fully, but Christians, first of all, cannot be possessed by demons. You just can't. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit possesses us. Christians can be op oppressed. They can be weakened. They can be tempted. They can be burdened. We don't have time to fully get into those two things. But this guy is demon-possessed, and yet it's very subtle. He's just there in the temple. And I wonder how long he was there, and I wonder how quiet he was for how long. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and everything changes. And I, and I do want to say this, for even for you and I, I think the enemy is very subtle. I think that we can kind of sit in church week after week, but still have bitterness, still have unforgiveness, still have sin in our heart. And, it, and it's not until we're confronted with the word of God, it hurts. It's not until Jesus comes on the scene and says something, goes, ow, this isn't, ow, why does this hurt me so much? And you're being confronted with the word of God. And Jesus does that. And, and I want you to see that once Jesus came on the scene, this guy's life, he wasn't expecting this. It's not like he was ready for this. And, and I, I honestly so believe that for all of us, we weren't ready for Jesus to come into our lives. Like, we weren't ready for it. We're like, yes, I want Jesus. And we asked him in our lives, like, I didn't know he's going to do all of that. Like, I didn't know he's going to, that hurts. That stings. He wants to get rid of what? He wants to add this? And I don't know if we're always ready for when Jesus comes in. I don't think this guy was ready for when Jesus came in. Jesus is like, I want a clean house. I want to I I do some things. So he comes in, and, and notice this. There's an unclean spirit. Now, if you would circle that word unclean, because it really just means defiled, it's like an Old Testament word. It's written, obviously, in Greek, but when you take it back, it has Old Testament roots. 
There would be people who were defiled who couldn't enter in the temple for various reasons, who couldn't enter in the presence of God for various reasons. The idea of being unclean was that the enemy, in a sense, the defilement was trying to separate you from God, that now you don't have access. He's trying to thwart God's connection to you. That I think this guy had this unclean spirit, and the enemy's trying to keep him away from God, from experiencing God, to thwart God's plans. And here's what I have to point out, is that you and I, today in 2018, I know we live in America, and I know we don't always see these things firsthand, but we cannot be naive to demonic presence. We just can't. We can't be naive to this. We can't be naive to the fact that whenever there's something good happening for the kingdom of God, that there's going to be some other kingdom trying to stop it. That we're trying to advance the gospel and do things for God and pray with people and help people. And and we're trying to do things. We go, why is today hard? Why is this weird? Why do I feel this? And we can't be naive to the fact that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We can't be naive to that. And I think that we we forget sometimes that evil still does exist. And there is supernatural evil. And not just that it's bad chemicals in the brain, but there's more than that. And I think we have to acknowledge that. That it's not a flesh and blood thing that's always happening, but it is a spiritual thing that's happening. And I think that this is what's happening. That Jesus comes on scene, there's this battle spiritually. And I, I love kind of the interaction. It's so interesting, right? If you look at verse 24, he says this, Let us alone. What have we to do with you? And it's not singular. Let us alone. What have we to do with you? And even that, sit, that sentence, what have we to do with you, it's this idiomatic statement. It's like, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Get out of here. Be quiet. Like, he doesn't want Jesus to be there. It's like this exaggeration thing happening. And, and I, it's funny because here we are, you know, it's like the weekend after Valentine's. Like, what are you doing? You're talking about demons and Satan on like the weekend after Valentine. What are you doing? It's like, he, that's what's happening. He's like, why are you here? Why are you trying to stop what's, what, what I want to do? And then Jesus, and then his response, he says this. He says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And here's the question. Did you come to destroy us? Answer, yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Did Jesus come to destroy Satan and the power of Satan and, and demons and hell? Yes. Yes, he did. First John 3, 8, I mentioned this verse, but we'll throw it up here. First John 3, 8, listen to this. It says, it's so good. You're gonna be blown out, blown away by this. It says, for this is the purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, or John says, Jesus came for this purpose. This is why he came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. So he's going, is this judgment day? And I, this question is really pointing to something bigger. Hey, is this the day that you're going to judge us? Is this the day? And like he, again, I want to say this. Satan and demons, they know there will be an ultimate judgment day. They, they know that they're going to stand face to face with God and have a judgment day. They know that they have this limited time, this limited time to do their work, to pull people away from God. And, I, and, and the spiritual warfare is just so unique in this way. We, we do got to acknowledge it. We do got to recognize it. We do got to see that there is something happening. And, and here's what's happening right now in some of your minds. Some of your minds are thinking, besides, it's the 21st century. Are you really telling me that you, you seriously believe in demons? You seriously believe in Satan? You really do believe in this stuff? This is so archaic. This is so old. This is, this is so not today, modern times. This is, this, is not, has nothing, this is not scientific. This is not observable. You cannot prove this in a laboratory. How, how could you believe this? And sometimes there's attitude, right, that we get. How do you believe in Satan and demons? Are you kidding me? You still seriously believe that? You know, there's some theologians who got together, and they, they called that attitude chronological snobbery. And, and here's why they called it that. They're saying, so you're basically discrediting the last 6,000 years of, of, of human history, kind of saying, those who believe in the spiritual realm, those who believe in demons, there's, there's all wrong. And we have come to find out in the last century that, of course, we're right. 
that it, only if it's observed, only if it's something you can see and witness and test and over and over again, only then makes it true. And the whole point is you are dismissing so many cultures, you're dismissing so many civilizations, you're, you're arrogant in that attitude to say, we know all these cultures and generations before us are wrong. They're saying that's really, that's snobbery. And then it doesn't, and, and also it's not satisfactory. It doesn't answer the questions of like ultimate evil or ultimate justice or even love. It doesn't satisfy those deep questions. We, basically they're saying, hey, it is survival of the fittest. And if, if you see love or if you see evil, it's just chemical reactions in the brain, that's it. And it's really not satisfactory. It's, it's either bad chemical or good chemical going off. And that's, that they try to almost say, it, they try to bring it down to that. And it's not satisfactory in the sense we go, no, no, we know that there must be something more than to the eye. That there are some things that are not observable. That you have a very educated group of people or culture and yet they commit genocide. You have very educated people who, are, who love, this, love that sphere of things and yet they're okay with uh, sex trafficking or genocide or <laughs> murders of just fetuses, like millions of murders of fetuses and they go, so you're just saying that's not evil. See, there, we know there must be something more to the, that meets the eye. And so for us, I think we do got to acknowledge this. You know, here's, here's something I would bring up this way. Um, if there's a God and he's good and he's loving and he's powerful and he's just, is it so far-fetched to believe that there's the opposite? Not that he's all-powerful, not that he's all-knowing, but is it so far-fetched to believe that there'd be opposite spirits trying to thwart the plan of God? Is it really that big of a jump? To go, yeah, I believe there could be someone who created this and designed this, and do you not think there could be the opposite side of this that's trying to actually bring harm and not, not good or not health to this? Maybe there is the opposite of this. And so here's this interaction between Jesus and the demon-possessed guy. And he says, we know you've come to destroy us. We know who you are. He says, we know that you're, you're the Holy One of God, and I love Jesus simply says, be quiet. It literally just means be muzzled. Like, mu- shut your mouth. Muzzle your mouth. This is actually the same phrase. Remember the disciples are in a storm, you know, they're in the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm, we'll read it later. And there's like crazy chaos going on, and Jesus simply looked at the storm and said, be quiet. Same phrase. Be muzzled. Stop. This is really interesting to most people because exorcists back in this day, uh, they'd have incantations, they'd have different seances, they, they would try to do things to get demons out of people. Jesus had to do none of that. He just goes, be quiet. Get out. It's very simple. Just word. And the demon freaks out and there's this pain. He cries out. And it's weird, I again, not to get into this too much, but I don't know if you've ever been around this. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Working at a church for 12 years, I don't have many interactions, but I do have a few interactions with people who I believe have been demonically possessed. And it's strange being in a room with them alone. And it's strange looking at them and praying for them. And they start spitting. And they start freaking out and pulling out their hair. It's, it's weird. But I, I love that there's authority with Jesus. There's authority with his word. That if God is for me, who can be against me? That we have the spirit of God. If greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. We can't be naive to this. I think the enemy is so happy when we get naive to this and say, yes, there's no such thing as the spiritual realm. In his mind, he's kind of already won. But Jesus speaks, be quiet, shut up, be muzzled, don't speak. And we see that this, this demon has to obey and follow Jesus. Now, here's my question. Here's a question we all have. And I don't think I'm going to answer it fully. But we go, but why doesn't he do this all the time, always, everywhere? Like, why doesn't Jesus all the time, always, everywhere, just cast out demons? Why, does he, why is this even allowed? Why does this even happen? Why don't we see Jesus do it for, it says many, in verse 32 through 34, cast out many. Why not all? And it's one of those questions where I, I can't really answer fully. 
And we kind of go, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there, why is there these shootings? Why are there these terrible, awful, disgusting, evil things? And why, if God is so loving and if he's so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? And there are some time, I think we should spend some time on this. I don't know if we'll fully get into it. But just a few thoughts I want you to consider. And I'll share a quick story. A few thoughts. We'll throw up all of them right here. Why doesn't God always stop this? Why does this happen? Let me just say this. First of all, if you keep the quotes about evil, evil creates a strong desire for ultimate justice. I want to say that when we see things happen like this, and we see, we see you know, bombings and people take their own lives and others around them, and they go, that's it? So Hitler just killed six million Jews, and he kills, takes his own life, and that's it? And I think that evil reminds us that there's a sense of this ultimate justice that is coming. That there is ultimate judgment day. That's not just people get away with all these wicked things, they take their own life, and it's like, so they win? They don't win. And I think we kind of all know within our heart of hearts that there is ultimate justice. And that we crave ultimate justice, but we also crave ultimate grace. <laughs> we want justice for others and grace for us. We're so hypocritical that way. But we see that this creates that. I'll say this also, evil is a result of the free will apart from God. And let me put it this way. Um, what if God did intervene every time? What if God did stop everything every time? What if God did usurp our will that he gave us and stopped everything every time? And did, what you said, well, it's only for the big things. Well, when, is it, when do you cross that line? So he might stop the big things, but does he stop you from clicking on that website? Does he, does he stop you from going to that place? Like, what, where does he stop? When does he start, just start usurping our free will all the time? And then what is that at that point? And that is that relationship, is that love, is that genuine commitment to him? We're making a decision. Like, at what point does he usurp? Like, how does he stop? And how does he decide in that sense? We just go, God, we want you to stop the big things, but not the small things. Let me still do my sins, but stop the big sins, God. And so I'd say that evil is a result of free will apart from God. Also, evil will come to an end. That's what, that's, that's what this reminds us. What's happening here, what Jesus is doing, reminds us that there will be a day that evil will come to an end. That the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That we know that those sins, those who've been wrong, you've been hurt, you've been wrong, you, people have hurt, done some terrible things to you, that Jesus will wipe away every tear from the eye. That you will be in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. And we know that evil will come to an end. And then also this, God experienced evil firsthand. Can we just be reminded of that? It's not like God's in heaven going, okay, you're going to suffer, and I have no idea what that's like. We are the only faith that says God suffered with us. That we say God actually took on evil. God actually saw his best friend pass away. God actually died himself innocently on the cross. You know, I don't know if you guys remember, um, I remember seeing this even as a kid. Obviously, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, but the Columbine shooting back in, I think, 1999. <laughs> this might freak some of you out. I was like in sixth grade. You're like, oh my gosh, how old is this guy? Um, but I was in sixth grade. And um, it was so clear, because that was kind of like the first incident something like that has really happened on a large scale, right? That kind of like changed just history. That changed American history in so many ways. And it was so unique, and I, I just remember this, this, there was so much fear at our school the next day, and I remember all the things that kind of came around that. And it's not like this happened so often where reporters could know, knew how to deal with families of, of loved ones. So I remember this. There was a news reporter who spoke to a father who lost his daughter. His daughter was a Christian. Maybe you've heard that story. She was a Christian. Her father was a Christian. And the news reporter asked that because she made some statement to the guy, her, the one who killed her. She made some statement about Jesus to him before he took her life. So the news reporter asked the father and says, so you're a Christian, your daughter was a Christian. Where was God when your daughter was murdered? What an arrogant question to ask a father who just lost a loved one, right? And the father responded so powerfully to me, like I can't forget it. He says, God was, he was, God was in the exact same place when his son died and was murdered innocently. 
Like, where was God when this happened? He goes, he was in the same place he was where his son was murdered instantly. His point being, my God knows how to relate to me right now. His point saying, God allowed his own son to die so that we could live. That God is not exempt from suffering. That God is not exempt from evil. That our God knows what it's like to suffer with us. You see, I, I can't answer all the questions. We can't answer all the questions on evil and suffering. There's so many, and we could spend so much time, and it's probably not the appropriate thing to even do. Sometimes we just need to just be quiet and still and try to comfort. Most of the time, that's what we need to do. But there's still these deep questions that haunt us, and I think the most comforting thing for us to know is that God was not exempt from evil and suffering, and that God the Father was the same place. When that, man, when that father lost his daughter, God was in the same place. That God is still sovereign, God is still king, God is still good, and God will actually bring those, those who died and believed in him will never perish. And that we have an ultimate hope. And this guy knew that, this father knew that, and Jesus knows that, this demon knows that, there will be this ultimate judgment day. He goes, have you come to destroy us? Is this the day? And Jesus is like, just get out of him, it's going to happen later, don't worry. <laughs> but it's like, I, this interaction just happens. And I want you to see this, that Jesus, just fame spreads people hear this interaction and going, what? With the word? He didn't do some crazy ceremony, but with the word, this demon's expelled? And they're kind of amazed by this, and it says immediately Jesus departed. Like, he left. And it's just so, it's, I love this about Jesus. Like, sometimes we did something really wonderful. We want to walk amongst the people and be like, oh, this is great. I'm so great. Jesus just leaves, right? He just goes. And his fame spread throughout all the region. And so we see this. First of all, like I said, Jesus has power of the supernatural. And before we move on, let me just be really clear. Jesus says the same authority I have, I give to you. How many times does he say that in the Gospels? I think I counted like six times where he says, I've given you this authority. You know, and, and here's something I just want to share with you guys in light, of, in light of this. Romans 12, 21 says it this way. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that right now we feel overcome by evil, but don't. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Jesus overcame evil with good. Jesus is good. All the authority. He says, this is how you overcome evil. You know, this guy named N.T. Wright who spoke about this for the church today, he goes, it's not just Jesus who has authority. What if we as the church believed we had authority again? Like, what if we actually believed that? What if we believed some of the things Jesus said about what we bind in heaven, we bound in heaven, bound on earth, bound? Like, what if we actually believed some of those things? N.T. Wright said this. I thought this was so good. Listen to this. He says, can I find it? He says, when the church learns again how to speak and act with the same authority of Jesus, we will find both the saving power of God unleashed once more and a similar heightened opposition from the forces of darkness. There's two sides of this. Again, I want you to hear this. When the church learns again how to speak and act with the same authority, we will find both the saving power of God unleashed once more and a similar heightened opposition from the forces of darkness. We'll experience this power of God. We really believe this. We'll experience the power of God, but to also expect opposition. Also expect it not to just go that smoothly. And I love, we need to get back to this, that we have authority because Jesus has all authority. And he says, I give you authority. Moving on, Jesus has authority over the supernatural. Number three, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over the natural. And this is important. It's not just spiritual, demonic things, but also over the natural. Look at verse 29. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. It's Peter's mother-in-law. And they told him about her at once. So he came out, so he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, 
That story's over, and she served them. All right. This is such a cool story. So Jesus has power over the supernatural. He has power over the natural, and I love this. They just get out of church, right? They leave church. They leave the synagogue, and I love that Peter's like, come to my house, disciples, and Jesus, come to my house, and I love that he brings Jesus home after church. I think that's something we should hear. Let's bring Jesus home after church, right? Like, it doesn't just stay at church. Let's bring him home. Like, hey, we, the car at home is tough sometimes. Like, let's bring Jesus home with us. This is good. So they bring Jesus home. And I want you to see that Jesus cares about the natural as well. It's not just the spiritual things, but he goes, this person's physically sick. He cares about the physical. I want us to understand as Christians, because sometimes we get really weird on both ends, that Jesus cares about the spiritual needs and also the physical needs of people. Do we get that? That Jesus does care about the environment. That Jesus does care about physical needs. He cares about th- this world. He created and designed and says, hey, I give you the keys. Take care of it, Adam and Eve, and now to us. Like, he cares about the physical things. That we are a word and deed religion. That we believe in the words and spiritual things and that salvation can only come through Jesus. We believe in the spiritual side. We believe also in the physical side. That, God, that we are stewards. We are stewards of what God has given us. That could be our bodies. That could be the physical thing. That we see that we are both. And this is so important. Actually, C.S. Lewis, I had to quote him once today, right? But he said this. We'll put it up here. For Christianity, listen, is a fighting religion. It thinks God has made the world that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as man makes up a story. Keep going. Next one. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. That God created everything good, sin came into the world, made it bad, and he's saying God insists and insists loudly that we need to help be a part of this process of restoration and healing that we're part of reconciliation, that we're part of restoration in relationships, that God cares about the spiritual, but he also cares about the physical. And so Peter's mother-in-law is laying there sick, and it's just that she has a fever, and it's kind of confusing when you read that. Like, there might have been something more. It wasn't just like a hot head. Like, she probably is dying of something. That's what it's communicating. Like, she's on her deathbed with a fever. Again, we live in 2018. We have a fever. We can take some medicines, some antibiotics. We're like, better. For them, it's not, not that easy. It's like, oh, no, she has a fever. This is the end. And Jesus comes on the scene and he cares about the physical, and he comes face to face with suffering. And I want to say this, I don't know if you ever come face to face with suffering, and you kind of felt helpless. Imagine how Peter, imagine how his wife felt, where they come face to face with suffering and maybe feel helpless. And I think this is important for us, because when we suffer, you guys, sometimes, and I want you to hear this, when we suffer, it feels like we have lost control. When in reality, it just shows us we never had control. Suffering reminds us that we never had control to begin with. When we go through what we went through, it's not like, oh no, what happened? We lost control. It's, it's remind us, no, you never had control. Suffering reminds us that we never had control to begin with. Suffering reminds us that there is one who's in control. That don't think you lost control, you've never had it. Don't worry, it's better than that. <laughs> you've never had it to begin with. I've never had it to begin with. It reminds us that we have the one, though, who does have it in control. And he comes on the scene, and he takes her by the hand and lifts her up, and, and she served him. And this is interesting to me, and it's fun to do this kind of things. but it says that he lifted her up. It says this in Mark 2 about the paralytic, that Jesus lifted him up. It says it's about Jairus' daughter, that uh, he lifted him up. It says it's about blind Bartimaeus, that he lifted him up. And it's also the, it's the same Greek words, the same word in every single time, and it also says it's about Jesus when he was raised up. And I want you to hear this, because those people who Jesus raised up, what happened? They died again. But Jesus was the only one to be raised to never die again. That this reminds us that the resurrection of Jesus is the promise and foretaste of our future resurrection, that we will one day rise to never die again. He healed her momentarily, but she died. He healed the paralytic, but he died. 
He healed, you know, the blind Bartimaeus, but he died. But Jesus raised to never fall again. And it reminds us that we will raise to never fall again. That because Jesus has risen, we too will one day rise. And it points us and it reminds us of this. And so he raised her up, and I love this. It says she served them. Like, I don't understand. Like, usually when you have a fever and it goes away, it takes a while. Like, okay, I still don't feel very good. Like, no, she's completely healed. She's like, let me help. Let me, how can I serve? And I do think that's interesting. Why does Jesus raise us up? Why does Jesus raise us up? Not a trick question. But it talks about in Romans 6 that we've been baptized in the death and resurrection of Jesus to walk in the newness of life. To walk in the newness of life now. And she's walking down the newness of life. Not her agenda, not her goals. Well, now that I'm back alive, you know, I was about to die, I kind of want to accomplish this on my bucket list. It's like, how can I serve? And Jesus raises us up so we can serve. That we are his workmanship. That we are God's masterpiece in Christ Jesus created for good works. That he's created us for this. She gets up and she doesn't notice this. She doesn't squander it. She's not like, thank you, I feel so much better. And she, like, P, like, I think Mark, and I just remember Peter's gospel. <laughs> I think Peter like, noticed this. Like, hey, my, and my mom-in-law served us. And she served. She didn't waste it. She didn't squander it. She was risen up to, to serve. And guys, Jesus has risen us up not to waste it, not to squander it, but to serve. To walk in newness of life. Not just go, I'm saved. Everyone else, good luck. You're on your way to hell. Good luck. But like, no, to walk in newness of life so we can serve and bring others into the kingdom with us. Amen. And, and I, I want us just to, to hear this heart, and we'll not get into this, but the ending, people hear this, and they bring all the people, all the demon-possessed people, all the people who are sick, and Jesus starts to heal them. And the sad thing to me in verse 32 through 34 is, we doesn't say, and they believed in Jesus. They just wanted something from Jesus. They just go, man, Jesus can heal. Jesus can do this. Jesus can do that. Awesome. And it just kind of ended there, and it moves on. If you read the verse after that. The, the point I think so often is we hear what Jesus can do. We go, this is so cool. Jesus can do so many good things. Oh my gosh, I want Jesus to do the same thing in my life. And you didn't really want Jesus. You wanted something from Jesus. And this is the, the trap I fall into. This is the trap we all fall into. Jesus will do these things. Jesus will heal. He will restore. He will make all things new. Praise God for that. Amen. But we kind of do, do the opposite of Peter's mother-in-law. We don't serve. We just kind of go, great, thank you. I needed this. I, you met my need. I'm done. I'm peacing out. And I've been, we've been in the church for a while where you see people come to church, they get what they wanted from God, like things are better now in their life, whatever that means, and they're, they're piecing out again. And it's weird how Jesus allows this. I, if I was God, I don't know if I'd allow that. I'd be like, no, you're not going to take advantage of me one more time. But Jesus allows it. He heals them. Just in verse 35, they move on. Now early in the morning, it's like, it just moves on. It's like they believed in Jesus, they received Jesus, they're following Jesus. It's like, no, they got what they wanted and they left. And too often in the church, I think people get what they want and leave. I got this thing from Jesus, I'm done now, peace out. And I'd say, let's learn from Peter's mother-in-law who served versus this crowd that just comes for healing in the end. Amen? Let's learn from Peter's mother-in-law. She's, she's raised alive again. She's raised up to serve. God has raised us up to walk in newness of life because there are other people that need to be raised up. There's other people who need to help reach for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to end our time. And I just want you guys, as we worship and as we sing, to be reminded of the authority of Jesus. The authority over the physical, the authority over the spiritual, the authority over the word. Remember that Jesus has all authority, and with all of that, he serves. With all of that, he loves. With all of that, he spends and he is spent. And here's what I'm also going to share. We're going to end with some worship. We're going to have a couple announcements. But I'm going to have a couple leaders up here who just want to be available for prayer. If you just need to be reminded of the authority of Jesus, say, can you pray for me? I question, I doubt the authority of Jesus in my heart so often. Hey, can you just pray for me? I, I'm really wrestling with this, what, what just happened. We're going to have some, some prayer counselors up here that just would love to pray with you guys. 
And I'm going to ask that just during worship, you just sing and be reminded of the authority of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray and we'll worship. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you have given us your son who has all the authority. And Lord, we don't want to just get something from Jesus. We just want to enjoy him. That the one who has all of the authority came to serve and not be served. Lord, just refresh our hearts with this truth. God, remind us of the fact that one day evil will be judged and remind us of the fact that you are not exempt from evil. Remind us of the fact, that God, that you placed yourself under pain and suffering so you can relate to us far more than we think. So we just thank you. We just want to praise you, sing to you, be reminded of you and your goodness and your love and your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.